0: testing. There we go. go. (laughs) Not that we really need it. I'm sure that my voice carries well enough. Oh, that's right. Okay. (laughs) Very good. Very good. All right. So, I've had a um, topic going around in my head for some time, and I've been thinking about it, and uh, so that's why I actually mentioned to uh, Noah that if he need somebody to preach, I have a sermon that's been percolating for quite a while, <clears throat> and he, he said, great, so that's awesome, um, but I want to talk about something that I call generational tension. It's a I don't know if anybody's ever used that term, like a sociologist or something, I kind of just made that up, but um, talk about the generations, and I want to say that uh, a lot of my comments are obviously from my perspective, experiencing getting older, and, um, and it's not fun, <laughs> it's not very fun. Uh, I would say I don't wish it upon anyone, but that wouldn't be a good thing either, would it? <laughs> I worry sometimes about cognitive decline, sometimes I find it a little hard to think of the right word that I'm trying to pull out of my head, I know it's there someplace, Uh, I notice that that's difficult, but I do have a good excuse. I I think of the brain as kind of a library, and so I have more years of storing away junk in my library than the younger folks, and so it's just hard for me to find that one item sometimes. because the library is a little larger. And I'm starting to have aches and pains in places in my body that I didn't know existed. There was a group of senior citizens sitting around at a restaurant that they met at, drinking coffee, and they were talking, and one of them says, boy, I just, I got this pain in my neck. I can't hardly turn my neck to look left or right. And the other, another lady piped in and says, my shoulder is hurting me so bad, I can't hardly really lift this cup of coffee. Another lady says, you know what? I, my cataracts are so bad, I, I'm having trouble reading the, the instructions on my medicine nowadays. And the other one said, well, yeah, I just find myself, with that new medicine the doctor gave me, it makes me a little dizzy at times. And then the, finally another one said, well, at least we have the blessing that we can all still drive. I was uh, talking to somebody one time in a uh, in a senior citizens home. I guess that's what they call them nowadays. And um, he he was like ninety years old, and but he would tell jokes, old people jokes. And he told this story of uh, a lady that took their ninety year old father to the doctor for his annual checkup, and uh, actually probably more than annual nowadays. And uh, they get in there, and uh, the doctor takes him, him, him inside, and she stays out in the waiting room. And um, he's in there for a while. And then the doctor comes out, and she says, well, how is he, doc? He says, well, he's, he seems to be great. Uh, we checked him physically. There's no, no problems, no problems, no, eight, no nothing serious, you know, the typical aches and pains of age. He says, we checked him mentally, he seemed very responsive, responded to all the questions, very alert. But he did say something kind of curious, she, she said. He, she, he, he said that, because uh, he asked him if he's going to the bathroom good, if that's no problem there. No problem there, doc, he said. But he says, you know what, sometimes I go to the bathroom and God turns on the light for me. And the doc, doctor said, that's kind of strange. I, I didn't know how to take that. And so the daughter, she's sitting there, and her husband's out in another room, and she hollers into him and says, the old man's been peeing in the refrigerator again. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, first of all, let's define some terminology. Define the problem. Define the problem. What am I talking? What is the problem? This is kind of the organization of my thoughts tonight I want to. Define the problem. I want to ask, what does God's word say about it? Because that's important, right? It's such a serious uh, issue or, or, or dilemma, we should be able to look to God's word for, for some kind of insight, right? Right? Um, and then I want to offer some recommendations at the end based on the insight we get from God's word. First of all, the problem. According to uh, one study that I found, they found that, and I don't know how much, how wide of a a research they did, but they found that among the type of diversity tensions that you can experience in the workplace, the number one most strongly felt tension or, or, or dissonance that somebody might feel in the workplace is not what you typically would think. It's not ethnic, it's not race, It's not gender diversity, it is, guess what? Age, age. Generational differences is what people feel more strongly in the workplace than any other type of diversity. And so, what do I mean by generational tension and where does it come from? It has to do with culture, what anthropologists, the anthropological concept of culture, not culture in the sense of I'm more cultured than you. But at the, at the heart of the problem is the fact that age does not just describe how many years you've been on planet Earth, but it describes your culture. Each age, each generation develops its own culture. Uh, and so it's not, it's not really age as much as it is it has to do with the period of time you were born in. And it's a question of culture a set of beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors that characterize a group of people. That's the definition of culture. And there's a certain set of characteristics and beliefs and behavior and values that identify different age groups. So generations create their own traditions, their own culture, including emotions, attitudes, preferences, dispositions, and this is at the heart of our shared, it comes from our shared experience that we have. And the problem comes in what anthropologists, cultural anthropologists call ethnocentrism. And that's not a a sin. It's not something that, like, oh, he's an ethnocentrist. You know, it's a terrible thing. All people, all people do ethnocentrism simply because you cannot interpret something else except through your own framework. I mean, that's the only way you can. Until you get to know that other culture to such an extent that it partially becomes part of your framework, and then you can begin to understand it. But otherwise, if you're not doing that, if you're isolated, if you're segregated into your own cultural niche, and you never come out of that, you will never understand that other framework. You will always look at it through an ethnocentric perspective, through a cultural, your own cultural perspective. Generational culture comes about because of our shared historical events. You know, I know that in my time, the biggest event of, that, that, that affected, well, a couple of things, huge events, three, I can think of three immediately. <laughs> Vietnam War was huge. Vietnam War. Woodstock was a huge, the hippie movement was huge, and landing on the moon. I mean, every one of my uh, friends in in school that, we all wanted to be astronauts. I mean, we were brainwashed to become astronauts. And so we develop these cultures, these individuals, this this group culture based on shared events, traumatic experiences, uh, a major shift in demographics can also be a part of it, and cycles of success and failure in different areas. Like the failure of the Vietnam War was a huge factor in the way we perceive the world. Music and art, obviously, is a huge factor. And the people with whom we work with on a daily basis, that creates this culture. So all of this coalesces into forming a certain body of behavior and attitudes and values that we can call a culture. In 1970, Margaret Mead, in her book, Culture and Commitment, coined the term culture gap. And that has now become part of the American language, of English language, culture gap. And that is the tension experienced when two generations come together. And they feel that, that cultural difference. I call it generational dissonance. You know the term dissonance. You, musical, you musicians, dissonance is when you get two sounds that just don't coalesce, and it's, it's irritating. It's irritating. That's the feeling people get when they cross a cultural if you go into another country, for example, and they don't speak your language, they, they don't have the same, they do things that don't make sense to you, you feel this, this dissonance. And I think people feel that same dissonance, that same cultural dissonance, when they cross generational lines. Every time we older folk look at you, younger folks, we're reminded of what we used to be. Every time you look at us, you look at, you're reminded of what you're going to become. It's not a very comfortable thing. <laughs> We're reminded of what we lost. All of these encounters, we are reminded that we all have an appointment with death. And we don't like, that's not a very comfortable thing. But the most important factor, I think, aside from this physical deterioration that comes with age, the most important factor is cultural between the generations. We simply don't understand one another. In 1965, the, the, the band, I don't even know if you've heard of them, The Who? How many know who The Who is? Okay. <laughs> they came out with a song. <laughs> yeah. Some of the lyrics, here's the lyrics to one of their songs. It was called My Generation. People try to put us down just because we get around. They, things they do look awful cold. I hope I die before I get old. Why don't you all fade away? And don't try to dig what we all say. I'm not trying to cause a sensation. I'm just talking about my generation. Remember that song, William? (laughs) That was our generation. We were the rebels back then, believe it or not. The problem is that generational segregation is actually harmful to society. And harmful, and it's harmful to us personally. I think, I really believe that. It puts us in a place where we lose out on the benefits of diversity, benefits such as creativity and innovation that comes from young people. When the older, the elder, the seniors—I'll call them the seniors—when we seniors cut off our relations with young people, we are losing our this creative vitality. And when young people cut off their relations with their elders, they are losing that wisdom that comes through years of experience. And so it is harmful to the body of Christ. It's harmful to society in general. But it always wasn't that way. For thousands of years, uh, societies could hold together the generations, um, be I suppose for many reasons, but I think one of the big reasons that, that, that this is not the case today is because of the, the communication systems that we have, that we are, we are so um, exposed to all the information of the world through, through the internet, through our iPhones and so forth. And so um, now there is this tremendous, there has been a, this tremendous cult, culture gap so now that when you approach a group that is predominantly of a different age than yourself, it's like going into a foreign country. So what does God's word say about all of this? When I was thinking about this, I, I, there were several Bible, I, it's very dangerous to start with a theme and then go to the Bible and say, what does it say about it? Because we want, we're looking for something and quite often what happens is we insert that something into the passage because it supports, it seems to support what we're saying. That's the danger. And I don't like to do that, and I try not to do that. And so I, I chose Malachi 4.6. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land in a decree, with a decree of utter destruction. Now, at Face Valley, I thought this is a fantastic verse to fit my theme. Seems to support it. Uh, but it's not as clear-cut as it seems, I found out. You know when you're, you're in trouble and you've, stu- you've spent you know all week studying a passage and you suddenly realize it may not be saying what I thought it was saying. <laughs> what am I going to do? Panic. But when you dig a little deeper you find that this, this little simple verse has a lot more complexities than, than it seems at first, at first sight. Malachi lived 100 years after the exile. The temple had been reconstructed, but things were not going well. There was a lot of corruption in Jerusalem, injustice, poverty. And the whole book re- just reveals, the, the theme of the book, is it, it just reveals the level of corruption that had infected Jerusalem. And it it takes place through a series of arguments. God makes an accusation. The people respond in self-justification. They never recognize that God is right. They argue with God. And then God simply declares his final word. And the central message is that the exile that was supposed to have brought about repentance did not. Everything was the same. Nothing had changed in the hearts of the people. And so God then promises a messenger who will prepare the people for the day of the Lord. That's a really important expression in all the Old Testament, the great day of the Lord. That day when God would inaugurate, would come in, in, in justice, in judgment, and in blessing for his remnant people. He calls them to repentance because he wants to bless them. But they insist it is useless to serve God, they say. That's their attitude. They fear, and, but there is a remnant, a faithful remnant that, that God pronounces will, will come, will we'll survive all of this. And they fear and honor God. They also, very interesting here, they read the scroll of remembrance. Zach, this, I don't know if we touched on this passage when we were talking about the scroll, the tiny scroll in the book of Revelation. I think this is related because that scroll, they, had, they read the scroll of remembrance, which represents the Old Testament scriptures, the, the book of remembrance, the book that, that causes us to look backwards at our roots, which also give us insight in how to go into the future. That's the scroll of remembrance. And then there's this concluding appendix, which many scholars believe is not really a part of the book as much as it is a kind of conclusion to the whole Old Testament, Old Testament canon. And he says in that part, remember the law, and one would come before the great day of the Lord to restore their hearts. And then there's a final warning, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, three interpretations of this. Three possible interpretations. The first one is what I would call the surface level interpretation. Just what the words seem to be saying in our English language, from our American cultural context, this is what they would mean. And that is that God wants fathers and sons to get along. In fact, he feels so strongly about it that he made that a central point of his gospel message. And that's why I chose the passage. (laughs) God wants his fathers and sons to get along with him, and he made that a core part of the gospel. That interpretation would have served my sermon perfectly. However, the more I looked at it, the more I realized that Malachi may not have had that in mind when he wrote those words. First of all, I found out that the word to can also mean with. It can just as easily be translated With. So you would translate that verse. He will turn the hearts of the fathers with their children and the hearts of the children with their fathers. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Seems to be taken the idea that both children, the children and the fathers will turn to the Lord, which fits the word turn, which in the Old Testament means to repent. It meant to to give heed to God's word, to turn your heart toward him to listen to him, to obey him, to respond to him. So the ministry of this Elijah who was to come was to prepare the way of the Lord to come by leading both fathers and sons to repentance. That would be interpretation number two. And then I continued researching the passage and I found that that's the, there's another possibility. Zechariah was a priest of the temple in the time that uh, Jesus was born. He was the father of John the Baptist. He was a godly man. Together with, with his wife, they prayed daily for the restoration of Israel. He would have been one of those remnants that Malachi talks about. And the angel Gabriel, you know the story, uh, spoke to, uh, to uh, the priest, uh, Zechariah, and, um, and told him that that. that they would have a child that this child would would be the one who would would prepare the way for the, the coming of the one who is on the day on the great day of the lord and um you know and, and there's an interesting comical part of that where uh Zech, the the Zechariah he he argues with the, the angel, he says, well, how am I supposed to know that this is really going to happen? And the angel says, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> you know, I'm an angel. <laughs> and, and, and so that's when the angel strikes him with, uh, makes it so he's deaf. He comes out of the temple. He can't talk. <laughs> That'll teach you. <laughs> I'm Gabriel, he says. But here's what in that prophecy he says, or that, that, that text He says, he, that is John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So in this place, he's clearly alluding to Malachi 4.6. However, he doesn't say John will turn the fathers to their children and their children to the fathers, he says that he will turn the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the just. Now it's interesting, the just was often used to refer to the ancient fathers of Israel, the, the patriarchs. So it appears that Zechariah understands Malachi's use of children as referring to the Israelites and the fathers as referring to the patriarchs Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, etc. Notice how he changed turning the hearts of the children to the fathers to turning the disobedient to the just. So for Zechariah the children in Malachi refers to the children of Israel. But how can dead people the patriarchs turn their hearts to the children of Israel? That's a strange concept. It is to us, but it wasn't to the to them. There's evidence in the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews thought of the patriarchs as looking down upon them with approval or disapproval. And there's a text, for example, in Isaiah 63, verse 16, he says, You, talking to God, are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Jacob does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father and redeemer from of old is your name. The people sensed they were disconnected from their roots, disconnected from the patriarchs. And um, and so that's the idea that's expressed here. So the ministry of John the Baptist would turn the hearts of the patriarchs back to the children of Israel and turn, as they turn their hearts back to God. On a side note, I should point out that Jesus explicitly states that John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. There are a lot of people who are still thinking that there's a future Elijah to come. Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirteen 13 and 14, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So you say, yeah, but that's not a literal coming of Elijah. No, it's not. Jesus must've gotten it wrong. <laughs> I think that if I side with Jesus, I'm siding with a pretty good authority. Who cares what the commentaries say? (laughs) Jesus says he is the Elijah who was to come. John came. What is the characteristic of John the Baptist preaching? Of all the things that John the Baptist did, what is the one thing that he preached? The central theme. Come on, you guys, you Bible studies, Bible scholars. What was the one theme of John? Repentance. Repentance. Exactly. And this fits perfectly with the Malachi prophecy. Repentance. Turning back, turning their hearts back to God. So, can I use this text? There's nothing worse than setting out to write a sermon based on a text. And after much preparation, finding out that it's not really saying what you thought it was saying. We have three different potential meanings. A simple father and son relationship that God was concerned about. Fathers turning Fathers and sons turning back to God, or the patriarchs turning to the children of Israel, and vice versa, as the children of Israel turn their hearts to God. So, can I use this text? I think so. Um, one scholar on this text, Richard Taylor, writes The father son relationships in view may be on several levels the immediate family, the larger family of God's covenant people, and also between the contemporary children of the covenant and the men of faith as at the nation's inception. So we don't have to divide it up. And it's not that the language, it's not that it has three interpretations, three meanings. It's that for the Jewish mindset, all three of those concepts are together as one thing. If people turn to God, then the fathers and sons will turn towards each other, their hearts toward each other. There will be unity and there will be blessing And the ancient patriarchs will look down upon them with blessing and acknowledgement. Now I want to go to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost. We don't find a direct quote from Malachi, but Peter does refer to the great day of the Lord, as does Malachi. And in that prophecy, I find it interesting that both the old man and young men... Receive the Holy Spirit, and this is specifically emphasized in Joel's prophecy. And they turn; they also turn their hearts to the Lord in repentance. In the last days, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and on your sons and your daughters, and and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, What is calling on the name of the Lord? That's turning your heart to the Lord. So what we find in Peter's discourse in Acts 2 is a reuniting of fathers and sons in repentance and faithfulness, which creates a new unified fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, we can include there as well, living for his purposes and enjoying his blessings. So what should we do? This is the recommendations part. They say you shouldn't give advice unless it's asked for, but I'm gonna do it anyway. (laughs) But I'm giving advice to myself as well. So, and and the advice is coming from God's word, not from me. So, Um, to the seniors, I would say, be a shepherd rather than an autocrat. And I get that from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Um, some might say that but he's talking about elders. That's an official office in the church. that's not as clear as well because in the very next verse he talks, and you younger ones, he says, this is very interesting. So he's, he's talking about the senior citizens of the church. Or he may be talking about both. So I would say one of the most difficult things as a father is coming to that place where you realize your children are starting to turn into little adults and kind of this mixture between adult and child and, and you don't know, it just doesn't feel right to release the reins rain, and, and let them be adults, you know. It, it, that's a hard thing to do. And some fathers aren't as good about it as others. And a lot of fathers, um, in their exercise of authority, which is a legitimate exercise of authority, they forget the part of love and nurturing and shepherding. And teaching. That's why I like the concept of a father being the priest of the family who who cares for his flock. Or who cares for his, that's his, his, his church, so to speak, is the home. The second piece of advice I would give is empower your youth. Turn over the reins of control. That's a scary thing to do. But we have to do it. And I believe that the failure to do this is the number one reason why so many of our churches are becoming a sea of gray. Is the inability to know when to turn over the reins of power and allow young people to be a part of the decision-making process. But the most important one is trust the Holy Spirit. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. I tell Nick a lot, I like to joke with Nick and say, you know, Nick, I I have confidence in you, but not in you. (laughs) I have confidence in the Holy Spirit who is in you. And that's what gives me confidence in young people. I look at the things that can be done when young people are committed to to God and filled with the Holy Spirit Wow, to change the world. Now, to young people, here's my advice see the inner person, the inner person. Inside this walking carcass that you see before you is still a 16 year old boy. I still remember those days, still in my mind, the memories are still there, climbing mountains, swimming across rivers, making home runs. The one sport that I knew how to play, pretty good. Playing football in a muddy field with my cousins. All of that. I won't talk about the bad parts, the naughty things I did. Throwing rocks at semi-trucks as they go down the highway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Mom, you didn't know about that one, did you? We physically deteriorate, and let's face it, that's a turnoff. The glamour industry has taught us to judge people based on external appearances. So in such a world, it makes sense that looking upon the aging with their wrinkles and their slumped backs can be um, a little bit repugnant. But what if we would see people's spirit instead of their physical physique? Wouldn't that be interesting? Maybe that most beautiful woman you've ever seen on television or whatever, inside, you if you could see her spirit, it would be like this wrinkled up lizard inside, slimy creature. <laughs> that, would be, that would be kind of scary. Secondly, realize that we are imperfect. You may think older people have worked out all their issues, but that's not true. I... I struggle with things in my life still. I still flub up. By the way, that's the baby boomer's F word. (laughs) Suspend your judgment. Try instead to understand rather than always evaluate. Take a descriptive posture rather than an evaluative posture. That's what you have to do as a missionary, you know. When you go into another culture you you suspend your judgment and you try to learn. The temptation is to just say these people are nuts, you know, and just completely, you know, judge them. But if you're a missionary, and I know some missionaries that have done that. They actually, you know, they're or or maybe their spouse, they hide themselves away in their house and they're done with, with it. And and um, you'll run into the missionaries who are really experiencing Culture, uh, what is the word, (laughs) culture gap? I want to say culture shock, culture shock. When all they can do is complain about the culture, the local culture, the local people. You know, they're going through culture shock. But a good missionary learns to suspend that judgmental aspect of who we are and try to become a learner, try to learn to see things through their eyes and then fourthly, respect your elders. Now, it's not my fault that this one's in here. God put that in his in the word, so I have to say it. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. I think that includes the elders as well. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And to all of us, be missionaries. Whenever you are in a generationally diverse situation, act like a missionary. You are entering a foreign culture. Don't be like some missionaries who isolate themselves, who segregate themselves. What do missionaries do? They try to understand. And then secondly, for all of us, turn your heart to the Lord. Only then will we be able to to overcome generational tensions and become the beautiful people of God that he has been working for for millenniums to create on earth. And I want to end with a, uh, quoting a hymn, uh, an old hymn. I'm not sure because it still uses the these and thous, And I had to include them because it's part of the rhyme in the song. <laughs> oh, for a humbler walk with God, Lord, bend this stubborn heart of mine. Subdue each rising rebel thought, and all my will conform to thine. O, oh, for a holier walk with God, a heart from all pollution free. Expel, O oh Lord, each sinful love, and fill my soul with love for thee. Oh, for a dearer walk with God, Lord, turn my wandering heart to thee. Help me to live by faith in him who lived and died and rose for me. Lord, send the Spirit, thy Spirit, from above with light and love and power divine, and by his all constraining grace, make me, keep me ever thine.